It's a great pleasure uh, to be here in uh, the Lynchburg area. Uh, I've visited many times uh, for recreational purposes, I'd say. Uh, this is our, our first, uh, my first uh, professional capacity visit uh, here. Um, we've uh, been visiting uh, yesterday and we'll uh, continue our visit today with colleagues of mine from the Richmond uh, Federal Reserve. Uh, and it's um, our purpose here to learn more uh, about the many technology and education initiatives related to workforce development uh, that have been going on here. And that'll be the subject of my talk today. It's uh, been rewarding and valuable and enlightening to us um, to be able to um, visit a place that places such a high value on early childhood education and continuing in technical education. We think those are very important, as I'll talk about today. Uh, it's also um, the, the case uh, th that uh, this is a special occasion for another reason. So this is the centennial of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, in December 23rd, on December 23rd, 1913, the Federal Reserve Act was signed. And uh, in May, the charters for the Federal Reserve Banks were, were granted by the U.S. Treasury. And in November of 1914, the Reserve Banks began operation. And uh, one of the authors of the Federal Reserve Act uh, is Lynchburg's, uh, was Lynchburg's own Carter, Senator Carter Glass, congressman at that time, head of the House Banking and Currency Committee in 1913. He, together with uh, Robert Owen, a senator from Oklahoma, uh, drafted the bill, and I think it's um, I, I think it's a consensus among economic historians that uh, Carter Glass had a, a very important role in shaping the structure of the system. Proposals up to that time had been for a single bank located in one city, and you can guess what it would have been. Uh, and his his vision was a federated structure, uh, and that resulted in the twelve distinct Federal Reserve banks. Uh, that I believe, and, and I believe many others believe as well, has strengthened the system immeasurably over the years by fostering a, uh, a decision-making process that brings independent viewpoints uh, to bear. Uh, and as, as you must all know from your walks of life, uh, the more different viewpoints you can bring together and bring to bear on a given decision, uh, the better your decision-making is going to be. And I think that's been an important strength of the Federal Reserve System over the years. Uh, so I'm honored to make, have a, pay a visit to Lynchburg and have a chance to call out uh, and recognize for the good citizens of Lynchburg uh, the contributions of one of their own uh, to shaping uh, this institution, the Federal Reserve System, that's obviously played an important role in our economy over the years. Uh, so thank you for Lynchburg, to Lynchburg for that. Before I begin, I should note that my opinions uh, are my, th that I'll express here are my own and uh, are not, may not be shared by colleagues um, in the Federal Reserve System as witness uh, my 2012 voting record, of course. Uh, shouldn't be news to anybody. Um, but that's the standard disclaimer that Federal Reserve officials, uh, other than the chair, uh, utter before they begin speaking. So um, it might not be obvious why the president of a Federal Reserve uh, bank, a, a Federal Reserve, a central bank policymaker, uh, would be interested in workforce development. You know, what does this have to do with interest rates and inflation, the traditional focal concerns of central bankers? Well, workforce development is immediately related to the second part of our legislative mandate, which is uh, to promote maximum employment. Uh, this has proven to be a very difficult task since the recession of 2007-2009, as I'm sure you're all aware. Uh, the unemployment rate persisted 
at about 9% for more than two years after the end of the recession, uh, even though it's declined uh, uh, fairly uh, significantly over the last couple of years. According to the most recent data, the unemployment rate here in Lynchburg has fallen to 5.6%, uh, and that compares to 5.1% for the Commonwealth of Virginia. And, uh, and even though both of those are well below the national average of 6.3%, they are above rates that were typical before uh, the latest recession. Now, there are some indicators that would seem to suggest that the labor market has recovered less than the decline in the unemployment rate uh, would indicate. The long-term unemployment rate, those unemployed more than 26 weeks, remains as at a historic high. And the labor force participation rate, I'll talk more about what that, that means, is at its lowest rate in decades. So in addition to the large number of unemployed, it also seems to be that there are a large number of people who've dropped out of the labor force altogether. And this has led me and many other policymakers to ponder a difficult question. Uh, given the limitations of monetary policy, what can be done to improve labor market outcomes in the longer run? At the Richmond Fed, our research suggests that much of what we're currently seeing in the labor market reflects structural trends rather than primarily cyclical influences uh, on labor market behavior. And this has prompted us to think about long-run strategies to prepare workers for labor markets. We've been thinking about workforce development at the level of the individual rather than the level of a, a sector or a particular industry or a particular occupation. And we've been thinking about, this leads you to think about what can be done to improve people's skills and adaptability, what people, what economists have come to call human capital. And th this approach, thinking about it this way, suggests that we can realize high returns from investment in workforce development efforts, uh, particularly those that encourage individual investments uh, in skills that start at a very young age. Workforce development should be thought of as more than just a short-term treatment to fix current labor market problems. It can also be thought of as a long-run vaccine that makes workers more resilient uh, to changes in labor market conditions. So when unemployment is high and inflation is low, the traditional argument uh, is that a central bank should employ expansionary monetary policy to try and lower the unemployment rate. But unemployment is a pretty complicated phenomenon. People become unemployed at different times and for different reasons. And the reasons they become unemployed uh, and the nature of the unemployment can influence whether monetary policy is likely to be effective or not, whether monetary stimulus is likely to have a big effect on unemployment or not. So the term cyclical unemployment is often used uh, to uh, refer to unemployment that's associated with a temporary downturn in the economy, as in a recession. And this type of unemployment is thought to be responsive to monetary stimulus. The term structural unemployment is often used to refer to unemployment caused by longer-term changes in the structure of the economy, such as the decline in certain industries or changing technologies and the like. And that's thought to be less likely uh, to be influenced by monetary policy. Unfortunately for policymakers, the distinction between these two uh, is not always clear. And in fact, sometimes a cyclical downturn can be caused by structural shifts. So structural unemployment can occur in a downturn, uh, because of a downturn. For example, the decline in manufacturing employment 
was an important factor in the economic downturn in 2001. And while the labor market eventually recovered, there was a long period of adjustment as new jobs were created in non-manufacturing sectors. And that process reflected more than just a shortfall of demand. It was a, a case of the economy needing to reallocate resources suddenly uh, from one uh, set of sectors to another. I think at least some portion of the high unemployment following the Great Recession appears to have been caused by structural factors. For example, we've been hearing from a number of employers uh, throughout the 5th District, and my colleagues have reported similar uh, findings from other Federal Reserve Districts, that they were, they've been unable to find workers with the necessary skills, despite the large pool of unemployed workers out there. Recent research by a F Richmond Fed economist uh, on the unusually large rise in long-term unemployment suggests that it was caused by an increase in the number of workers entering unemployment who were inherently likely to exit unemployment, perhaps because they lost a job in a declining industry and their skills were not easily transferable to industries that uh, were experiencing growth opportunities. The labor market seems to have improved recently, and that's heartening. Over the past two years, the unemployment rate has declined by two full percentage points. Underlying this decline, however, is an unusual trend, a large drop in the labor force. So there's a statistic, I mentioned it before, labor force participation rate. Uh, and that's defined as the proportion of the working age population that is either employed, either they have a job and it's, they're employed, or they're unemployed and looking for work. And that looking for work part is important. Workers are only counted as unemployed for this purpose if they are actively seeking a job, if they've undertaken one of a list of activities in the last four weeks. And so reading newspaper ads doesn't count, um, but actually making an application to an employer would count, for example. So the unemployment rate can decline for two reasons. It can decline not only if people find jobs, but also if a large number of people stop actively looking uh, for work and thus aren't counted as part of the labor force. So an alternate, there's an alternative measure of unemployment, and you may have seen this in the papers from time to time, uh, and it includes what are called marginally attached workers. And these are workers who say they want a job but haven't looked for work in the last four weeks. Uh, so they wouldn't be counted in the standard unemployment measure, uh, but they are counted in this broader unemployment measure. And this measure is more than a full percentage point higher than the standard unemployment rate. And that suggests that the standard unemployment rate might be understating the actual amount of slack or unutilized resources in the labor market, and thus perhaps overstating the recovery. So as with the unemployment rate, it's important to try and untangle the influence of cyclical factors such as discouragement over job prospects versus structural factors that are affecting labor force participation. Uh, for example, the retirement of many baby boomers, where the, population, the composition of the working age population is shifting towards age groups like 60 and over in which participation is traditionally low. People t traditionally retire. Or the increasing number of young people who are attending college, college enrollment, enrollment in educational institutions among uh, people in their 20s has been rising. And this takes them out of the labor force, obviously. In fact, the labor force participation rate has been declining for more than a decade, but, but even before the latest recession. And economists at the Richmond Fed who've tried to disentangle these, these effects 
um, have concluded that the current low rate looks consistent with these longer run structural trends. And so cyclical factors, uh, discouraged workers um, leaving the labor force uh, just because of recessions in train, that seems to have dissipated and its effect on the labor force participation rate uh, seems to be gone by now. So it looks as if the decline in the labor force participation rate is due to these other structural factors that have been going on. Taking a broader view of the labor market, our economists at the Richmond Fed have also uh, constructed an alternative measure of labor market slack, and they call this the non-employment index. Uh, unemployment index was taken. Uh, so they call it non-employment index. This measure considers all of the working age population that doesn't have a job, considers them all as uh, potentially employable, not just those counted as unemployed um, uh, under the official definition. And, and underlying this is just the empirical fact that some people go from out of the labor force in any one month, some people go from out of the labor force in one month to employed the next month. So they sort of skip this part where you're looking for a job for four weeks. So that suggests that anyone can go from out not having a job to having a job, whether they're counted as unemployed or not. Um, so what they do is construct um, uh, an index that uh, weights different groups by the typical probability of that group finding a job in the next month. So uh, the short-term unemployed who've been unemployed for less than 26 weeks, they have a, a fairly high rate at which they, they re-enter employment. They, they transition from unemployed to employed. Uh, those who have been uh, unemployed for a longer time have a typically lower pr probability, uh, not zero. But and those out of the labor force also, even if they haven't looked for work recently, they also have a probability of finding work. And so you weight these, the size of these different groups by their probability of transitioning into employment. And at the far end, you've got a group of people that self-identify as retired, and their probability of transitioning to work is virtually nil. Hardly any of them actually take a job the next month, according to the data. So the changes, this, this rate is higher than the standard unemployment rate, like that, like that unemployment rate I told you before that includes marginally attached workers. Um, but changes in this alternative non-employment index are parallel changes in the standard unemployment rate. And both of them are about halfway back to their 2007 uh, troughs. This suggests that the standard unemployment is actually a reasonably good indicator of the current amount of slack. And movements in that rate are a good indicator of the current amount of slack in labor markets. In other words, there is more slack, indeed, in the labor market than is indicated by the standard unemployment rate, but there always is more slack in the labor market than indicated by the standard unemployment rate, and there appears to be no more slack than usual, more, no more additional slack than usual uh, in the labor market than indicated by the standard unemployment rate. So while un unemployment rate has come down uh, six point, at 6.3 percent, we should take that as consistent with uh, times in the past when the unemployment rate's been 6.3 percent. So my reading of the evidence is that much of what we've observed over the past five years reflects structural changes in the economy that would have been very difficult for monetary policy to offset. And I think that's a good reason to think about what strategies we as a country can employ to ensure that future generations of, of workers um, are prepared to respond to the type of changes in 
uh, the labor market that we've seen over the last several years. So to think about those strategies, it's helpful to begin in the early 60s when, economies, when economists first began seriously thinking about uh, the forces and decisions that lead people uh, to make decisions uh, that affect their capabilities uh, in the labor force. Uh, they proposed thinking about knowledge and skills as simply another form of capital uh, that make workers productive. Uh, sort of like the physical capital, like machines and computers that also make people more productive. Workers acquire this human capital by making investments. Uh, for example, by attending school or getting on the job training uh, or online training even uh, or receiving medical care. That can improve your capability of working, for example. Uh, recently, a, a consensus has developed that human capital is more than just the number of years spent in school or the number of years spent on a job. Research suggests that non-cognitive skills, such as the ability to follow instructions, uh, patience, uh, work ethic, and the like, uh, lay the foundation for mastering more complex cognitive skills and may be just as important a determinant of future labor market success for our young people. These basic emotional and social skills are learned very early in life, and it can be difficult for children who fall behind to catch up. Gaps in skills like this that are important for adult out outcomes are observable at age five, and they tend to persist well into adulthood. So what does the economics of human capital imply for workforce development programs? Well, several insights are especially relevant, I think. First, it makes economic sense to concentrate intensive human capital investment on the young. The earlier workers invest, the longer they have to profit from their investments. This is not a knock on old people, but it's just a fact. In addition, because workers typically earn uh, more uh, the older they get uh, and get more experience they get, young people attending school tend to sacrifice less by way of foregone earnings. One of the costs of human capital investment of going to school is that you're out of the labor force and you give up the earnings uh, that you would have had. And that cost is lower the earlier uh, in a person's life you, you undertake that investment. Another key takeaway is that investments in early childhood can affect later decisions about formal schooling. If the foundations for learning are laid uh, very early, then even small delays in acquiring the, those non-cognitive skills I talked about might make skill acquisition more challenging later in life. After all, I mean, think about the intuition this way. Why try hard to get good grades, stay in high school or enroll in college if those, things are, those investments are less likely to pay off? Uh, so there can be this interdependence over time in uh, investments in human capital. Human capital economics also implies that higher education should lead to higher future wages, both because education is costly to acquire and you shouldn't acquire, you, you need a return to justify that investment, and because it ought to elevate your productivity, and over time, wages and incomes align with an uh, individual's uh, productivity. Indeed, the data confirm very strongly that the payoff to education is quite high, and that's a, a point I'll return to with some numbers in a minute. This view of workforce development points towards uh, investing early in life, but it also points towards the challenges confronting later interventions, interventions later in a worker's life. Asking adults to reinvent themselves in the face of 
relatively short remaining working horizon when retirement and exiting the labor force become very viable economic options for them. That's asking a lot, both of the workers and of the workforce uh, development professionals that train them. Uh, and indeed, research shows uh, that workforce development efforts that focus solely on training or retraining adult workers tend to have only modest effects on employment and job uh, retention. So another argument for uh, earlier intervention in human capital investments. Of course, this doesn't mean adults cannot or should not learn new skills. I have a tremendous degree of uh, sympathy for the plight of workers who have been laid off from jobs later uh, in their life, uh, jobs they performed admir admirably, job maybe occupation areas where they entered early in their life, viewing it as a, a, a great prospect for um, many decades to come. Uh, I have a lot of plight, plight, uh, sympathy for the plight of uh, workers in this region, um, furniture, uh, apparel, textiles, um, which over the last several decades have suffered uh, sort of decimating loss of jobs. Um, but we may need to be cautious about treating older workers' difficulties as remediable through job training alone, uh, when the appropriate course of action there may be simply greater use of our social safety net for them. So we may be able to help a large number of future workers, though, by expanding our focus and thinking about workforce development not as a cure for short-term labor market shocks that individuals might experience, but rather as a long-term vaccine, as I said, that, that'll help protect them against future disturbances in labor markets. More specifically, interventions well before adulthood, even as early as preschool, can reasonably be considered part of a package of long-term workforce development initiatives. For example, we hear from uh, both employers and workforce development professionals in our district that a lack of soft skills is a major obstacle for many job applicants. An early focus on critical non-cognitive skills thus may improve labor market outcomes later in life. When we look at data, we find strong support for the view that labor market outcomes vary significantly with human capital investments made early in life, most notably formal education. Following the 2007-2009 uh, recession, the unemployment rate for workers with only a high school diploma peaked at 11%, compared to a peak of just 5% for the unemployment rate of workers with a college degree. Even now, the unemployment rate for high school-educated workers is about twice the rate for college-educated workers, 6.5% versus 3.2%. Education also has a significant effect on earnings. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the median weekly age for a worker with a bachelor's degree or higher in 2013 was over $1,000, over $1,100 actually, compared with $651 for a worker with only a high school diploma. Over a lifetime, a median worker with a bachelor's degree can expect to earn $2.3 million based on 2009 earnings, compared with just $1.3 million earned by the median worker with a high school diploma. These are stunning facts about the return to investment in human capital. And they make it tempting to recommend college as the primary path for workforce development. But let me note a very, very important caveat here. Higher wages and lower unemployment rates are benefits that appear to accrue only to students who actually graduate from college there seems to be relatively little benefit to attending college for only a few semesters without earning a degree. 
Workers who have attended some college but who have not graduated are unemployed at about the same rate as workers with just a high school degree. And while they don't, while they, if, if you do attend some college, you earn, you earn a, about 15% more than someone who has a high school degree, now workers with at least a bachelor's degree earn 83% more than someone with a high school degree. Uh, but despite the high return to college completion, the college dropout rate is around 40%. About 40% of, of kids who enroll don't make it uh, to complete a degree within six years. And the high school dropout rate is also relatively high. More than 20% of high school students fail to graduate within four years, and the rate's as high as 40% in some large urban school districts. Students can earn significantly lower wages and face much higher unemployment rates than workers with more education. So what do all these statistics tell us? Students who, who plan to attend college could benefit from more information about what's required to succeed. We've spoken with representatives at four-year colleges and community colleges in our district who've noted that many students are surprised to discover that they lack the basic math skills that are necessary for college-level work. If students do not have an accurate assessment of their own readiness for college, they may be more likely to drop out after they get there. And that's a costly lesson to learn. The average debt burden among college dropouts who took out loans is more than $14,000. Those students who have benefited, could have benefited, I think, from learning more about options other than enrolling in four-year colleges. Um, and we spent some time at CVCC yesterday, and, and, and that's a... a what community colleges are, are able to do is a, a great testament to that. Um, community colleges are a venue where students can learn more about their own interests, learn more about their own skills. Um, and it's a venue where they can, they can polish those skills and, and, and hone the skills required for success at a four-year school if that's the path that turn out, turns out to be appropriate to, uh, to them. But other options are, are available as well at the community colleges. So I think there may be large gains from sharing information with high school students about different career and post-secondary education options and the level of preparedness necessary for success. For example, one, one factor in the high school dropout rate may be the increasing focus of most high schools on college preparation to the exclusion of other options. Some students may not wish to attend college some students may perceive, and th there may actually be barriers to succeeding in college, to actually completing a degree. If these students believe that the only reason to complete high school is to attend college, they might not see much value in graduating from high school. But learning about alternative career opportunities that also require a high school degree could increase the value they see in completing high school. And we've seen that in the data that the completing high school is tremendously valuable. Um, for example, there's a growing number of vocational or apprenticeship programs that offer specialized training in areas that are in high demand. Healthcare, for example, or advanced mathematics. Um, we, we had a, a, a great time learning about the STEM Academy at CVCC yesterday. So we, we also, I think, have to try to ensure that well-prepared students don't forego college because of perceived obstacles, uh, such as the cost or lack of knowledge about the payoff. Many students, uh, including those, uh, particularly those, in fact, from low-income families, overestimate the costs of college and underestimate the opportunities for financial aid. I think students also might face social norms that inhibit 
um, their, their college attendance, that by underestimating, causing them to underestimate uh, their potential benefits and their likelihood of success. Researchers have found that providing um, low-income students with targeted information and assistance can increase their matricula matriculation rates, and it can play an important role in changing the beliefs of students who erroneously think they're not college material. So the takeaway from this discussion is that you know, if you look at workforce development through the lens of what I've called human capital economics, uh, what economists uh, think about when they think about investment in skills and, and abilities, it, when, you, when you do that, it, it tells us that workers will realize higher returns on their investments in human capital. And those investments are made early in life. Uh, that could mean expanding the scope of workforce development strategies to include early childhood education. But very importantly, providing young people and their, and their families uh, with more and better information about the risks and returns of a multitude of, of career and uh, educational opportunities. So to sum up, let me, let me say that it's difficult for monetary policymakers, as I said at the outset. Let me reiterate that it's difficult to distinguish between cyclical and structural uh, changes in the labor market. But the distinction is crucial because monetary stimulus is unlikely to have much effect on unemployment that results from purely structural shifts. My own view is that much of what we experienced since the Great Recession is the result of structural shocks and longer-term changes in the economy. And that's led, led me to dissent in 2012, uh, but it's also led me and my colleagues at the Richmond Fed to think about how we can best prepare workers to respond uh, to future changes uh, in uh, labor market opportunities available to them. And one answer seems to be about thinking about workforce development as a long-term investment strategy for our people, not just a short-term fix. I think workforce development is a, just a vitally important issue for individuals, uh, for employers, uh, and for communities. Um, but I think it's vitally important for our country uh, as a whole. Uh, there are the tremendous gains in standards of living that we've experienced over the last uh, three centuries have depended on, crucially, on investments in physical capital, to be sure. But human capital was absolutely critical as well. The accumulation of knowledge over time, uh, after all, is what is essential to the process of uncovering and deploying technological innovations that are, are the thing that really fuels economic growth and, and, and productivity gains that pass through into increases in standards of living. And when you look at disparities in economic outcomes um, across countries, across communities within our country, uh, it's clear the differences in human capital accumulation play a, just a huge role. I think doing our utmost uh, to help the ne next generation of workers make the best use of their talents and opportunities is going to lay the groundwork uh, for both them and their children to achieve their full potential and for our country uh, to achieve a much more inclusive uh, prosperity. I thank you very much for your kind attention. And I believe we have uh, ample time for some questions, if you'd like. Yes, sir. Wait for the mic. Uh, you the mic. you have uh, pointed to uh, some very significant national issues. I think, well, well, you know, I mean, there's been a huge debate in the country 
for a number of years about you know the education system. What is it broken or not? Many people think it is. So do I. Um, and uh, also some of the comments you made about things that um, were non-cognitive skills. Um, in my own mind, relate to cultural issues like, you know, learning to be patient, learning to um, be, you know, have work, work ethic, that kind of thing. Things that people are, kids learn at home. Um, you know, these, these are like gigantic uh, issues. How do, you, how do you propose to have any impact on that? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it, it's a, a tough challenge we have. Um, if you look at the skills a person acquires by the time they're 25, it's clear there are many inputs into that process. Uh, economists like to think about things in terms of production, and inputs and outputs. And uh, our school systems um, are a uh, you know, very important input, but uh, families uh, are also a tremendously important input as well. And um, you know, it's it, it's clear that we've we've tried very hard to improve um, the school side of the equation. Um, and there's been lef less effort on the family side. Um, and uh, the differences across families in the, the nature of the inputs they provide into the human capital accumulation process, you know, arguably um, are important, uh, important ingredient in the differences in outcomes we see uh, across, uh, across uh, people that reach their 20s. Um, and uh, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in cracking the code on that one. Um, but I do think it does uh, merit attention. Good morning. I'm Turner Perra. I'm a local business owner, and I imagine many of the people in this room are also. Uh, this morning, uh, my conversation with other business owners was mostly dominated by the fact that, that our health care uh, is renewing this year, and we're seeing large, large increases. And for some of my employees, that's the effect of having a new car payment every month. So my question is this. Is this going to cause some economic tightening on a national basis? What's your, how, how is this going to affect the U.S. on a macro level? That's a really good question. We've been wrestling with that um, at, at the Richmond Fed and within the Federal Reserve System, keeping a close eye on health care. And it, it, this has been sort of a new phenomenon for us. Ten years ago, uh, as I looked across uh, the economic landscape, and I'm thinking about monetary policy, and I'm thinking about economic fluctuations. Healthcare was something you could set to aside, because set to the side, because if you look at recessions, healthcare employment was just a straight line, whereas other industries like construction and manufacturing exhibited swings and expansions and contractions, um, and so it, it was something you could sort of put to one side. But now, uh, there's just a tremendous amount of of change going on. And it's clear from uh, what we've been hearing from our business contacts, going back to a year and a half, two years now, uh, that it's been a tremendous focus of attention on their part and a, a tremendous um, uh, matter of concern for them. A lot of small businesses have been telling us, were telling us last year that uh, they've been, uh, their management teams have just been spending an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out a strategy for coping with uh, the introduction of um, all the provisions that took uh, effect at the beginning of this year. Uh, and that clearly detracted them from thinking about new investments, um, other, uh, uh, you know, other initiatives that could have increased productivity. In addition, there, there, there's the, the potential, the way the law is structured, 
uh, to have significant incentive effects on hiring um, and uh, on growth. Um, people have talked about the notches at 50 and 30 hours per week and the like. Um, whether that's uh, material or not is, is very unclear. Uh, some evidence suggests that it might be only minor. Um, you know, on the other hand, there's evidence from other countries that broadly suggest that things like that can have a, a stifling effect on business formation and, and business growth. Um, so that's, that's a source of uncertainty as well. And then just even within the healthcare industry, uh, I think there's going to be several years of uh, just transformational adjustments until things sort out. Um, so in the basic, there's this basic fact that you're, you're pooling people to form risk pools and the cost of those risk pools, what you ought to price them at, depends on the composition of the pool. The composition of one pool, of your pool, depends on what options were available to the people who chose your pool. If different options were available, you'll get a different pool than if other options were available. And, and legal requirements like um, you know, not ruling out people due to pre-existing conditions has a big effect on your costs as well. I, I, it, it was bound to have been something of a shot in the dark uh, when um, insurance providers were setting rates for this year. Their experience is coming in, and, and I'm sure that will cause them to revise their rates over time. Their revision in rates is going to affect people's choices, which will affect the composition of the pools, which will affect the cost of the pools, which will affect the rates again. So we're in for a process of, I think, a couple of years of iteration before we have a stable, under the current rules of the game, a stable uh, allocation, a stable sort of sorting out of you know, who's going to the exchanges, who's got an employer plan, who's got an individual market plan, and the like. And in the meantime, the cost to employers of you know, putting their people on exchange or paying themselves, all that is, is, is going to be sort of shifting as, as it goes. Um, and uh, you know, my sense is it's going to be a drag on you know, business leaders' time um, and uh, uh, bandwidth um, for a, a couple years to come. And it's going to lead to um, you know, shifts in the way um, healthcare industry is organized. Um, there were shifts going on already uh, due to the impact of, of, of uh, you know, changes in compensation for Medicare and the like, but also changes in technology that have led to consolidation among hospitals, private practices being swept up into larger groups or, or, or even merging with hospitals. Um, while some of those changes offer the prospect for solving some of the problems we face in healthcare, which, fo which you know, in terms of the effectiveness of healthcare delivery have to do with the fragmentation of the supply chain of delivering, you know, you, the, you go to so many different people and you fill out a history for everyone you go to and, th and there's less coordination of care among specialists and, and uh, than, than there are in other countries with different service models. The, some of the changes offer the prospect of addressing that um, and so offer some hope, um, but there's going to be a lot of, I suspect, a lot of bumps in the road along the way. So um, we're, we're having to pay more attention to health care. Um, it's, uh, you know, a sixth of the economy uh, now. Uh, nothing to sneeze at by any means. And um, it, it's, uh, I, I don't think it's going to cause a recession or anything like that, but um, I, I do think it's um, that, that transformation that, you know, I talked about the 2001 recession where you've got a shift from, structural shift from, you know, one industry and the economy has to redeploy resources. I think we're going to be doing that kind of 
reallocating resources and reallocating, restructuring the way we do things in healthcare. And that's going to have this effect on businesses uh, for a couple of years to come. So, um, you know, for uh, for you, business uh, businessman or woman, I'd I'd urge you to you know uh, continually school yourself about what's happening in healthcare, uh, so you can make educated decisions as as time goes on. Down in the second row here, there's a need for a microphone. Mike Davidson, Economic De Development Director for Camel County. Some of your comments today, you were talking about the value of a four-year degree college degree being by far more valuable to uh, people. Uh, our particular area, and I, I can't give you the uh, regional statistic, I can tell you that in Camel County, we're about 27% of our workforce works in manufacturing, mm -hmm. where the highest hourly wages are paid, mm -hmm. and even with your uh, acknowledgement of structural changes going on where fewer people, because of technology, can make more product than what they did 5, 10, 15 years ago, we still have a very large need for workers to go into manufacturing. A lot of the conferences uh, just recently came back from a consultant's forum where site selectors that do the work to find places for industry to locate. There is a resurgence. Manufacturing is picking up again nationwide. Uh, some of the challenges that we have here in our area are replacing the baby boomers that have stayed away around way longer than retirement age, and retirement age is going to hit the brick wall before mm -hmm. long. <coughs> I think that we do need to, and, and I don't know what perceptions and what you have heard about there are people today that can go to work for our manufacturers and make more money or equal amounts of monies to people with a master's degree in psychology mm -hmm. or some of those other degrees. Yep. So I, I just wonder, have you heard much of that and what are you, what your perspectives on making sure that there is a large need to have people with technical education? They gotta get through high school, but there's not as much need in our area right now in some of our manufacturing for the four-year degrees as it is the two your specialized technical educational career type things. So I, I couldn't agree more that the, uh, about the need that you've identified. And your, um, your county is one where um, that need is just front and center as an economic development matter. Uh, since uh, you have such a high concentration of employment uh, in manufacturing, 27% is exceptionally high. So the nation as a whole, it's closer to 10%. Uh, in some areas, it's lower than that. Um, so. Uh, Yes, I couldn't agree more. It, it's, it's this nature of a balanced approach. You know, four-year degree is right for, for many people. And the, the value of a four-year degree, of completing a four-year degree, has gone up tremendously since the 70s. But at the same time, only 60% of the kids who start end up completing a degree. They all think they're going to complete a degree. They all think they're going to get grades. But a lot of them end up taking another path, starting college, taking another path. And I think I think if we in invest more in, in other options for kids and treat them fairly, you know, treat those other options with respect, and not and not uh, and push back against this notion that, uh, you know, the only the only path to a respectable middle class lifestyle is is through a, a traditional four year degree. I think I think we'd we'd be it would be beneficial. Um, people respond to incentives, and um, I, I think localities around uh, the country. Um, are realizing, hearing from site selection specialists and, and companies looking to locate that, hey, we need a, a, a workforce that, that has the technical skills. And 
the places in our country where vocational education never went out of style um, are doing well. And I, th I think investing in that capability, so you've, you've got that pipeline of 20-somethings uh, that have come fresh out of school. The, they have the facility with computer interfaces uh, that let them operate these new machines. This is not, you know, this is not your grandfather's uh, machine shop anymore. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a you know, very digital uh, world now. And, uh, uh, but still, you've got to know the materials. You've got to know what the machine's doing. You've got to know kind of what's happening when that, when that cutter goes through that material. Um, th that kind of training, I think, can, will pay off for a location like Campbell County, I think. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I'm advocating when I, I talk about informing people about the and families, too, about the range of opportunities, what, the, what earnings are typically associated with it, them and the like. Uh, so I, th I think it's a very important, um, important area. Uh, so I couldn't agree more. Good morning. My name is Penny Wallace, and I'm a business lender at Beacon Credit Union. And I would just like to kind of piggyback on what Mike said. I'm from Campbell County as well and know Mike and grew up there. I would just like to share my family's um, decision that my son and we made. Uh, he graduated from high school in 2010 and wanted to go to a four-year college. That's what we had hoped for him. We all go to a four-year college. You'll go to a four-year college. Um, when the time came, he looked through the handbook and said, Mama, I don't see a major in here for me, and I don't want to waste your money and start college and then not know what I want to do. And so he decided he was interested in being a diesel mechanic, so we started learning about that. And so at the age of 17, he went to Nashville Auto Diesel College, one of the best diesel colleges in America, um, worked exceptionally hard, got his um, diesel tech degree in one year, graduated sixth in a class of 400, came back to Lynchburg and had three job offers the week he came back. He's making as much money <laughs> as I'm making now, and I graduated from Virginia Tech in the 80s with a four-year degree. Um, but anyway, all that to say, um, he has since, no, just saying, um, <laughs> he has since paid off his $25,000 loans uh, from his schooling and is debt-free, living on his own, and so I just deem him exceptionally successful at the age of 22, um, and so I, I think you're right about being more, getting the awareness out of these technical colleges, mm -hmm. um, because like I said, before he even came up with the idea, we were like, no, you're going to a four-year college, mm -hmm. and so I think we do need to kind of change the mindset, especially the Campbell County area, um, in different agricultural type areas, just that that is an option. It's a great option. You can make money. You can be extremely successful at a young age. So just wanted to share that with y'all. Thank you. That's a great story. Uh, let's give her a round of applause. <laughs> Penny, first off, let me commend your parenting skills. Uh, to have a child say, I don't want to waste your money, I, I'm, it blows my <laughs> mind. I'm not sure. I never heard that from any of my kids. <laughs> so. Um, you, you obviously raised a, a, an insightful young man, and uh, congratulate you on, on uh, you know, the flexibility and, and creativity of the think, you know, your thinking. Because I think a lot of, a lot of Americans are sort of in a rut. I think the broader sort of media and perceptions about um, options like that are are lagging reality. I think, um, and in our country, and you know, we're, we're coming off a period, a three-decade-long period of decline in traditional low-skilled manufacturing. Uh, you know, the textile, 
um, you know, apparel and, and uh, furniture industry here in the south, you know, in, in this part of the country, uh, the great example. And uh, peop when people think about manufacturing, I think they, you know, I think there might be a lot of people out there aren't aware of these kind of developments, the kind of things we're talking about today, um, and, and the kind of stories like you told, Penny, that, that think of manufacturing in a very out-of-date way and don't realize what's going on on the factory floor and, and, um, and what, it, you know, what that means. You know, it, it, it's definitely the case that we lost a lot of jobs to lower-skilled workers overseas. A lot of manufacturing jobs left uh, as a result of that. And we're not, we're not going to be able to compete in a global marketplace on that. But, you know, it now looks as if there was something transitory about all of that and that wa the wage cost differential to China and Asia has, has been narrowing steadily and it's gotten to the point in some industries where uh, some of the other hassles that go along with offshoring to Asia um, have, uh, are, are, aren't worth it given uh, the wage gaps. The wage gaps aren't big enough to, to compensate them for that. So the, you know, the, the hassles with intellectual property protection, with logistics, transportation, uh, and the like are just not worth the, 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 the smaller wage gains that you, you know, wage cost gains you get um, by offshoring. I, I think that there's the, the resurgence of manufacturing um, that, uh, that we heard about a bit a minute ago. You know, there really are some manufacturers where, uh, some things where, you know, offshoring doesn't make, makes, where there's some economic, there's a comparative advantage to citing something in the United States. And for innovative technologies, you want to be near the scientists, and you're not going to send your whole research and development crew overseas. Um, for uh, some things, you need to be close to market. Automotive uh, parts, for example, a key example, a big, huge growth in upstate South Carolina in my Federal Reserve District um, associated with BMW and uh, related auto uh, industry, aerospace, for example. So there, there are these key industries that where offshoring prospects just do not look nearly as serious. Um, so while looking back at the last three decades, you might think sending a kid into manufacturing is maybe a risky prospect. They might have a good income now, but um, just as textile workers had a decent income in the 60s, couple decades down the road, things might change. But still, I think that the resilience is an important feature here that we need to focus on. The ability to learn new skills. Um, that facility with, with shifting gears and saying, all right, this industry isn't going to work out. What do I do next uh, later in life? I think that's an important component uh, that, that has to be there in, in, in when we invest in human capital, when we teach kids. Because um, we're not just teaching them what we're teaching them. You know, we need to be teaching them how to learn as well uh, on an ongoing basis. And the growth of online learning opens up a lot of uh, possibilities that way. But again, commend you for uh, great child rearing. Yeah, that was, that was very impressive. Great. <laughs> All right. That's where it came from there. Great job, Penny. Down here on the aisle. This is a totally different question. I'm going to assume for a moment we're going to get a handle on what we discussed today with the education because I think that's spot on. We all love our kids and we all love our grandkids. How big of an issue is the national debt? So it should always be an issue. We should always be thinking about it. It's something we choose just like your family's debt. And if you're not choosing strategically, if you're not choosing in a way that's aligned you know, with your values, you're, you're, you're going to uh, not do as well as you could. Um, our national debt is at a level that's not a crisis now. Um, what is problematic is that 
the path for our national debt implied by what, by current law, uh, is in 15 or 20 years uh, going to take our national debt to levels that are going to be potentially problematic for us. Um, and um, the sooner we make adjustments to that path that's in the law, the, the less costly the adjustments will be, and the better off we'll be. Um, we're in a situation now where the, I think it's accepted, broadly accepted, that um, you know, further increases in the deficit um, are, um, uh, you know, are, are out of bounds. I mean, the political system seems to be treating things that way. Uh, we're at a stalemate as to how to adjust the mix of spending and taxation. Um, but it means, you know, it constrains us um, and it prevents us from uh, making new investments without cutting back on something else. Um, and given the um, political stalemate that's uh, prevalent in Washington, uh, it means, um, uh, you know, it means less choices available to us. So, uh, you know, the, the, the lower the path we can, we can keep that debt to, uh, the more options we'll have available to us uh, when opportunities arise in the future. So it is a concern um, broadly for, for us as a society and something we need to focus on. My fear is that the heat seems to be off now. Our deficit got to over a trillion dollars a couple of years ago and now seems has been declining since. And I think um, there, there seems to be a sense of people sort of exhaling and saying, well, we'll sort of leave it alone and deal with it when it starts going up again with the retirement of the baby boomers and their, their use of Medicaid funds in the, in the 2020s. Um, and I think it'd be a mistake to, to leave it, um, leave those problems um, alone for a while. I, I think the more we could do now to address that, the better. One more? One more question. Um, your reference has been made to your dissent in 2012 in monetary policy. Since you're not on now, what would your position be in terms of the direction of monetary policy at the present time in the next year to two? Uh, so I supported tapering uh, since I voted against the asset purchases to begin with, the, the reduction in the pace of asset purchases. Um, I, I, I still support interest rates being at the low level they are now. I think it's appropriate given uh, the con configuration of forces and the, you know, the weakness of economic growth uh, that we've seen. Uh, we've had growth at about two, two and a quarter percent over the last um, five years, really, since the end of 2009. Uh, economists have been expecting an acceleration of growth to three or four percent, uh, but it always just seems to be right around the corner. It just never seems to get here. We see we keep getting two percent, and I threw in the towel a, a year or two ago and came to the conclusion that the growth we were getting was about the growth we were going to get, and I, I still think that's true. Um, I think that um, we're going to have to give thought to raising interest rates. Um, the FOMC members, uh, participants um, publish uh, their forecasts for GDP, growth, um, inflation, and for the federal funds rate. And from the published forecast, you can infer that most of us think we have to, almost all of us think we have to raise rates sometime next year. And... Um, and I think that's a reasonable forecast. That's my forecast. That's the forecast I submitted. Um, and uh, but getting the timing right is going to be tricky. Um, and um, 
doing it, communicating well about it um, so that uh, uh, you know, we don't induce a skittishness or excessive volatility in asset markets like uh, long-term interest rates or, or equity markets I think is, is important. I think we'll try hard to do that. Um, we've had recent experience with raising rates coming out of recessions uh, kind of like this. Um, 1994 was the first time we raised rates before seeing inflation rise. And that's, that's important. Um, so I, don't, I, I, don't, I think it would be a mistake to say, well, let's, let's wait until inflation starts getting a little out of control, then we'll raise rates and bring inflation down. I don't think that's the right way to run policy. I think we want to run policy in a way that keeps inflation stable um, over time. Um, and we, we set the precedent in 94 of raising rates before inflation pressures emerged in order to nip them in the bud. And I think that served us well over the last 20 years by setting a precedent for uh, nipping incip incipient inflation pressures uh, before they emerged. 2004, we took, um, a, a, I think we took the lesson from 94 that volatility uh, was to be avoided. And so in 94, we'd move, wait a meeting or two, move again, sometimes move 25, sometimes 50, sometimes 75. In 2004, we took pains to make the process predictable and, and well-telegraphed. And uh, in hindsight, I think we might have gone overboard uh, in 2004 in telegraphing our moves and making uh, the moves um, uh, smooth. Uh, because, it, you know, think about it this way. So we moved a quarter of a percentage point at every meeting. We met eight times a year. We didn't change the schedule. So over two years, we moved interest rates, you do the math. It would have been kind of an accident if we got to exactly the right place over two years. Arguably, we should have thrown in an extra quarter point or two uh, over the course of that time period. So I think we need to be a little more flexible than we were in 2004 um, while, while communicating more fully. As we do now, in general, we communicate more fully to markets than we did in 1994. Um, but it's, it's going to be tricky. It's going to be tricky. Thank you very much. This has been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed being with you.